Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you guys this morning. The sun came out for a brief moment, and then, I don't know, it looks like it's disappearing again, but hopefully you enjoyed that. My name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico Church Arlington, and it's my privilege to be here with you guys, worshiping God and responding to him. Um, If you're new here, as Pastor Jason said, welcome. We hope you guys um, feel welcome. We know that it's really hard to move into a new place um, where you may not know anybody. And especially a place like this where everybody's so busy and people's schedules are packed, it can be really hard to get connected. And so our desire is that we would connect you to God and that he would connect you to his family, which is here in this church. And so we're really happy that you're here. Also, if you are still kind of figuring out what you believe about Jesus, or maybe you figured it out and you're like, I don't believe any of this, we're glad that you're here too. And this is a safe space for you to kind of process that and to wrestle through some of those things. So welcome. Um, If you are new or visiting, we're in the middle of a series on Ecclesiastes. So this series, um, as Jason said, is where dreams go to die. And um, are you guys ready for more? Yeah, yeah. Here's some sick puppies. This is this is um, this is really good, but it really challenges kind of what we think and our natural presuppositions about what God is going to tell us. And so, the text today that we're gonna that we're gonna look at kind of is a departure in a way from the natural rhythm and progression of Ecclesiastes. And he actually introduces a really important theme right here in chapter 5. And that theme is the fear of God. And we know from um, the introduction of the series that this is how he resolves the book. Um, The author, Solomon Kohelet, he resolves the book by saying, fear God and obey his commandments. So he's introducing this theme for us today. And it's a break from going through all of the different areas of life, wisdom, pleasure, work, um, and then looking at oppression and evil um, and selfishness. And now he's going to say, not only are people selfish, and not only is the world broken horizontally, But when we come to God, there's also a fracture. And we also bring that selfishness in and that self-obsession in to our relationship with God. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Um, But before we get going, I want to ask you guys a question. And I think um, you, you probably will identify with this. I know I certainly do. But the question is, have you ever felt distant from God? And if you, um, if you are a Christian for over a week, the answer is probably going to be yes. We feel distance from God in our walk. We hit periods of dryness um, where our relationship with God does not feel alive. It almost feels like God's not there. And that's a very real feeling. And sometimes it feels like that will never end. Um, And so I went through a, a season like this about, I don't know, it was probably eight years ago now. I was living in Colorado. I just started grad school. Um, I was filling my life with all the things that I wanted in my life. So I was um, going to grad school because I wanted a certain job. I was going to this particular church because I liked the people who were there. I liked its style. I liked um, everything about how it made me feel. Um, I, was, I was going through relationships looking for them to contribute to that because I knew how I wanted my life to be. And then it hit me one summer that all of these things were bouncing around in my mind and 
honestly, it wouldn't have made a difference if God was real or not in my mind at that time. So I, I felt very far from God. I felt a huge distance from God. So I said, Nate, I know what you need. You need to get away from everything and go on a backpacking trip by yourself for about five days and 100 miles. That'll fix it. So um, I embarked on this backpacking trip, and I hoped that all of these distractions would be eliminated in the wilderness, and I could just be close to God again. And so here's what happened. It rained the entire time. (laughs) I was soaking wet. It was freezing cold, and I was miserable. But it wasn't the cold and the wet that was driving driving me the most crazy. It was that my thoughts did not stop. And I had no one to bounce them off of or distract myself with. I was utterly alone with myself, and I hated it. So my heart was busy, my mind was busy, and I felt completely isolated from God. And I think that all of us experience times of dryness, and it's for various reasons. So it's not always because of selfishness. Um, It's not always because we are very um, self-centered and self-obsessed, but sometimes it is. Um, But today we're going to look at what happens when in that distance from God, we seek to know God. And when we know God truly, we fear God. And when we fear God, he brings us near. And so that's what we're going to see today is that knowing God leads to fearing God and fearing God brings us near to God. And so again, remember last week we were looking at all of the evil under the sun. And we were almost asking ourselves that question, where is God? Where is God in all of this? Why isn't he doing something about this oppression, about greed, about unchecked loneliness? Why isn't he doing something? And so this week, we're going to look at what happens when we approach God like that. And how he responds to us as we approach God. So I'm going to read this. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, God, I know that there are people in this room who um, feel distant from you. They feel like there is space in between their life and you. Um, God, I know that people go through times of doubt where they don't know if you exist or if you care. And so, Lord, I ask that today as we, as we come to your word, as we seek you, as we gr- gather together as your family 
that you would be here with us, that you would um, that you would remember your promise that where we gather in your name, there you are. And so, Lord, be here through your Spirit. Help us to to see the glory of Christ and to be comforted by Him. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so we are going to look at, as I said, knowing God leads to fearing God, and fearing God brings us near to God. And so we're going to look at three different kind of ways to solve this riddle. And the first is why we don't fear God. So why don't we fear God? The second is why we should fear God. And then finally, we're going to talk about how fearing God actually brings us near to God. So in, um, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, we see a picture of people who are proceeding to the house of God. And they're going to God's house, they're approaching him, and we get some advice from Kohelet, from Solomon, who knows a thing or two, or two about coming to worship God. He built the temple. He was the worship leader of Israel. And he says this, he says, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. So sacrifice of fools, bad. And then also, do not be hasty to utter a word before God. Basically, don't vow. Don't make a vow. Don't make a promise to God. So we're going to look at two ways that we know we're not fearing God. And it's when we try and manipulate him, control him, or get something from him through sacrificing and making vows. So here's basically a, a definition of offering sacrifices. Um, because that's not something that we typically think about here. But here's what it is in our context. It's doing something for God, for God, but you're expecting something in return. And this is all over scripture. This is called idolatry. This is what people would do for idols. They would literally sacrifice things to their idols, expecting that that particular idol would give them a desired outcome. And so they would have a bunch of different idols because they want a lot of things. And so we do the same thing with God. Um, But here's what we need to know. God does not need or want our vain sacrifices. So God is perfect in himself. He is completely self-sufficient. He cares more about our heart, the heart that we bring to him, than he does about what we do for him. He wants our motivations and our desires to be pure. The second way is by making vows, by offering promises to God. So promising allegiance or future obedience to God, again, in exchange for something. We do this because we want to get something from God. We want to have him bless our lives, so we say, if I promise this, then he'll give me that. So promising allegiance or future obedience to God in exchange for something. So this actually flows from a great deal of arrogance. And here's what I mean by that. When we promise future obedience to God or that we'll do something for God, We are arrogant because we assume that we will be able to do what we say. And I don't know if you're like me, but if you're anything like me, um, you've said a lot of things that you'll do in the future that you never do. And so when we do that with God, it's called making a vow and making a promise. And then here's the other thing um, that makes this a very arrogant way to approach God. It's arrogant because we assume that God wants that. Because really the belief there is like, God, you need me to obey you. You're not complete unless I do this for you. So it's a very subtle way of kind of manipulating God, of trying to get something from God, because we think that we can place him in our debt. 
So making vows and um, offering sacrifices are just, just a couple ways that we seek to control God. Here's another way that we don't fear God. We don't fear God because we don't know God. So Kohelet tells us that we are on earth and God is in heaven. So he's reminding us of who God is by just the position, right? So God is in heaven and you are on earth. That's right there in verse 2. Um, so even if, one, if at one time we heard the information about God and we affirmed it and we're like, yes, this is who God is, I believe this. He's all-powerful, almighty, ever-present. He is perfect. He is holy. He is beautiful. We live in a different way. And so we live according to our projections of who God is. So that's how you know, like, when you disobey God, you're not actually thinking of the God in Scripture. You're thinking of the God in your mind. And so it's a different God. You don't know God in that moment. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, it says this about God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And so this, this wonderful picture of who God is, it actually transcends our ability to comprehend fully. So God is in heaven. He's in the heavenly realm. We can't see that realm. How can we fully know who God is? So these big and wonderful um, attributes of God, they kind of create distance, it seems. God transcends us. He's completely other. And so there's a sense in which we don't know God in that way. And then finally, we don't fear God because we forget who we are. When we approach God with a long list of to-dos and complaints, we've completely forgotten our nature. So here's our nature. We are creatures. God has created us. So we are right off the bat dependent on him completely. Everything that we have, every breath that we draw is dependent on God. And so what sense does it make for us to come with a long to-do list for God? That's like a complete reversal of the created order. The other part about our nature that we forget is that we're sinful. (laughs) Every breath that we draw is not only from God, but it's mercy from God. God promised that when we sin, we will die. And so every millisecond that he prolongs that is nothing but pure mercy. We are completely, utterly sinful. We deserve the death penalty, both physical and spiritual, but we act and think as if we're entitled to life, as if we have rights that God must honor because of who we are. So it's a very dangerous way to approach God, and Kohelet's warning us about this. Here's what this looks like in a really um, wonderful story. So a couple years ago, my wife, Elizabeth, and I, we went to Iceland, and Elizabeth was pregnant at the time, and we decided to take a, a hike. It was about, I don't know, it was like a five or ten mile hike or something. I can't remember, but here's a couple things about Iceland that you need to know for this story to make sense. There's nothing but sheep and rodents in Iceland. There's some horses, but they're really small, and so there's no predators The other thing about Iceland is there's no people. There's like 300,000 people on this huge island. So there's very few people. And so we're out there hiking in the middle of nowhere, um, and there's nothing out there. And all of a sudden, we're hiking along, and we turn around, and the sheep's following us. We're like, what's the sheep doing? It's like, oh, this is kind of cool. So we keep going. The sheep's getting closer. 
and it's getting closer. And I'm, I think it's hilarious. I'm like laughing. But Elizabeth is deeply offended because this sheep is stalking us. It's literally sizing us up and it's stalking us. And so we stop and we're like, what, sheep? And the sheep starts pawing the ground and snorting like it's going to charge us. So I'm laughing. I think it's hilarious. I'm like, what is the sheep going to do here? But Elizabeth gets so mad at the sheep. And she, I don't know, I think it was like some some kind of like um, Tai Chi or Taekwondo or something move that she did. But she kind of like screams at the sheep and it's like, ah! <laughs> and the sheep takes off. And it's like, okay, so here's what happened there. The sheep did not know it was a sheep. It forgot it was a sheep. It thought it was a bull or a rhinoceros or something. It thought it could actually do something. And the other thing is that it didn't know what a person was. It didn't know that a person was not going to take being stalked by a sheep. And so this is, this is how we approach God sometimes. We completely forget our nature and God's nature and how they collide. So how can we know this God? If God is out there and he's beyond our comprehension, and our goal here is to draw near to God, and we want to be close to God, how can we do this? Well, Kohelet here says that we must fear God. And so why should we fear God? I've already touched on some of this, so we're just going to rehash it a little bit. But we should fear God because of who he is. And the first thing that we know, and it's in here, it's just kind of um, assumed, is that God is present. So this big God, this God that transcends, this perfect, holy, mighty God is here. He's present. These people are going to the house of God. They're approaching this God. He is present with us. He's imminent. The other thing, we are approaching a just God. And so we have to know the God that we're coming to, that we want to be near, and that he's perfectly just. He does not look past our sin. He doesn't wipe it under the rug. He will not abide in justice. He will deal with our sin, and he will execute perfect judgment on it. And again, that penalty is spiritual and physical death. So we should fear God because he is just. And then we should also fear God, again, because of who we are. It's just a reminder as we see God who he is, we get a better picture of who we are. As we come near to God and we see his perfection, his holiness, his beauty, his power, we see our imperfection. We see our injustice. We see the ugliness of our sin. His goodness compares to our fallenness. His infinity compares to our finiteness. So a biblical and true knowledge of who God is will give us a biblical and true knowledge of who we are. And at the, resu- the result of this is that we are completely transparent before God. So when we come to God, Kohelet says this, don't utter a word and don't let your heart be busy or hasty. So it's not just the words that come of our, out of our mouth that are audible to God. It's the thoughts in our heart in our minds. God sees these. He knows our motivation. He knows our nature. We cannot scam, manipulate, or trick God into loving us. (laughs) 
It's our nature that he sees when we come to him, and it's our nature that he judges when we come to him. So we are seeking to draw near to God. We know who we are now. We know we're getting an idea of who God is. We must fear God then because we know who we are and because we know who he is. So now how fearing God brings us near to God? How does this work? This seems kind of counterintuitive. And I was talking, um, I was talking about this example of like, if you are in Hawaii, let's say, and a volcano erupts, do you go towards the volcano or away from the volcano? Go away from the volcano. Some of you might go towards it. You fear something else. But in that moment, you don't actually fear the volcano. You fear losing your life because of the volcano. And so you pursue what you fear. You fear losing your life, and so that changes your direction, and you actually move towards what you fear. You pursue it. And so the same is true when we come into um, when we come to know God. But we first have to really clear, be clear about this, and we have to be clear about what fearing God actually means, because it probably means ten different things to all of you in this room. And so I'm going to define the fear of God for us, um, and this will help under, help us understand the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's a two part definition. So the first part of it is fearing God is becoming utterly aware and convinced that God holds your life in his hands and that you have deeply and profoundly wronged him. So God holds your life in his hands and you've deeply and profoundly wronged him. Here's the second part. And the God who holds you in his hands is utterly good and merciful. He desires to show you mercy and he's provided for you a way of mercy, and he offers it to you. So fearing God rightly humbles us and quiets us to receive from him rather than seeking to control or to contribute to him. And this is just true of fear. Fear simplifies things. Like you can be having a really busy day where you have a million things that are going on in your mind and you have a lot of things that you're thinking about and you're going to do, And then let's just say you're walking down Clarendon Boulevard and a grizzly bear is two feet in front of you. Things get really simple for your day, right? All of the thoughts, boop, there's a bear. I need to get out of here, right? And so fear does this. It simplifies and quiets our minds and focuses us on the object of our fear. So fear in that way is a really good thing when we come to God because it quiets us. And when we're fearing God, we only want to receive from him. We don't, we don't come to God saying, why aren't you like this? Why aren't you giving me that? You need to do this for me. No, we just receive from him. So here's an illustration of what this might look like. And it's from Jesus's life. It's during, um, during a time when he's with his disciples and he's kind of teaching his disciples about who he is and what he's doing. And they just got done teaching. And so they hop in a boat and they're going across um, a body of water. And Jesus is tired because he just got done teaching a bunch of people and he wants to take a nap. And so he takes a nap and he's sleeping in the boat. And as the boat is going, a storm comes out of nowhere and waves start to come over the boat. 
and it seems as if the boat is going to be swallowed up by these waves. And so the disciples freak out. They don't know what to do. They're like, we're about to die. Jesus is sleeping. So let's at least wake him up and see if he has any ideas. So they wake up Jesus, and Jesus gets up, and he says, what's going on? Why are you afraid? And they tell him, and he rebukes the wind and says, peace to the waters. And it's dead quiet. The waves go away, the wind stops, and the boat is still. And you know what happens to the disciples in that moment? Are they like, hey, Jesus, that was awesome. No, Scripture tells us that they were greatly afraid. Think about that. Think about you in that boat, and you just woke up this person who is with you in the boat, and they said, peace, and the waters obeyed. That's power. That is a deep power. There's no conversation about who the captain of that boat is anymore. It's like, if you can do that, you are the captain. And so how does this work when we, when we see the power and the might of Jesus, and yet he's embodied? Like, what's the point of that? And so I'm going to take us to Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, and we're going to finish here. Um, because this is a great illustration of how the logic works of when we fear God, here is what we receive from God. Here's the offer of mercy. Here's the way of mercy that we have. So I'm going to read this. It should be up on the screen for you guys as well. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to good to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we draw near to God now because of Jesus with full confidence. We know our Redeemer. We can come into the presence of God knowing that when God looks at us by faith, he doesn't see us. He sees Jesus, his perfect son. He sees the second person of the Trinity when he looks at us by faith in Jesus. So it's not our vows that make our proximity to God safe and blessed and wonderful. It's not our sacrifices that earn us the right to have a relationship with God. But it's Jesus' vows. It's his promise And he promises us this. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And his dwelling place will be with us. That's the promise of Jesus. And his sacrifice was perfect. It was something that we could never do because our motivations are never pure. But he offers a pure-hearted sacrifice. And in that way, Jesus became the house of God. 
In Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And it's through him that God's spirit then dwells with us. And so our nearness to God is not a subjective experience. It's an objective reality. So regardless of how close or distant we feel, when you trust in Jesus, you can be assured that God is dwelling in you and that you are dwelling in Christ. So we're brought into this deep intimacy with God, and yet we still have this exhortation from Kohelet to guard your steps. And so what does this mean for us? Well, in Hebrews, it goes on after showing us how Jesus is our priest, and he is the temple of God, and he is the way of mercy. And it uses plural language. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so how we guard our hearts when we approach, God's, approach God, when we approach Jesus, is by committing to intentional and consistent fellowship with God's family. Because it is there where we're going to be reminded of who God is and who we are. And that's just going to continue to happen over and over when you're around the family of God. And so each of us has a responsibility to each other to do this. Because we know we've experienced what it feels like when God feels distant. And hopefully we care enough about each other to remind each other of God's promises in the midst of that darkness and dryness. And we can't do that unless we're here together. And so guard your schedules, guys. Guard them. Like, if you value being near to God, then guard your Sunday. Commit to being here. And it's not about, um, like, fulfilling a certain quota of Sundays, but you're just not going to feel near to God if you don't come to church on Sunday. It just won't happen. The other way is when you approach God's word, guard your heart there too. You have to immerse yourself in the narrative of scripture. And so this needs to be a priority. You need to guard your schedule throughout the week to be able to do this because we need to receive from God who he is and be reminded of who we are constantly, every day. And we get that treasure in his word. It reminds us that We need to fear God. And when we fear him, we are drawn near to him. And so the knowledge of who God is, his transcendence, his complete otherness, and his nearness, his presence here with us, it gives gives us this deep and paralyzing fear as we consider ourselves in his very presence. And as we seek to draw near and in our moment of helplessness and despair, we are always reminded when we are with each other and we're in his word that the way of mercy is given and our fear becomes perfected and complete in love for God and in love for each other. And so I'm going to um, close this this sermon by praying over you all. And so I'm going to... might be a little bit longer than we're used to hearing a prayer, um, but I am—I have a heart for people who feel distant from God, and I know that 
that is only solved one way, and it's by God's presence. And so um, I'm just going to pray over you. If you know someone, like if you're in a really good spot with God, but you know someone who feels distant, pray for them right now. And if you are in that spot where you just can't seem to get your um, arms around God, and he feels very far off, then just receive this prayer. Heavenly Father, um, you are Emmanuel, the God with us. Lord, you are our creator. You have created us out of dust. You have given us breath in our lungs. You give us the thoughts in our minds. You allow us to continue to draw breath to draw the air that you made for us, to be um, warmed by the sun that you created. Lord, we remember who you are. And we hear and receive who you are from your word. And as we do that, Lord, I, I confess that there are seasons of dryness and distance in our lives, in my life and in the lives of people here and Lord, we cry out to you. We don't cry out because we want to manipulate you or because we want something from you. Lord, we want you. And so Lord, I ask that you would be here, that you would comfort your people, that you would remind us that you have offered us the way of mercy, that your presence with us is not dependent on us. We can't manipulate that but you have given it to us freely. Lord, I ask that you would help us believe that when it's really hard. When suffering draws our eyes off of you and we're tempted to be consumed by our own suffering, Lord, I ask that you would spare us from that, that you would break through our suffering and remind us that you are good and that you have promised us eternal life new bodies where every tear will be wiped away. And for all of the people who are lonely, Lord, I ask that you would break through their loneliness, that not only would you give them a friend and a companion here, Lord, but that you would also encourage them with your promise that we are part of your dream, that we are part of the multitude through trusting Jesus Christ that will proclaim your glory, and we'll worship you together for eternity. And so, God, I ask that that would comfort us, that that would be a balm to our spirits, um, that we would not remain downcast, but that you would lift us up, that you would take our eyes off of ourselves, place them on you, and, Lord, that this family of God would love each other and that we would love you together. God, and I ask this, um, with the full assurance and confidence that you will answer this prayer and that you hear us and that you are near to us. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.